0: Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Where Ryan left off, I'm going to go ahead and read the next two chapters for us. uh, Settle in. Uh, My name is Dodds, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Sojourn Heights. Today, we're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. Exodus tells the story of Israel's divinely orchestrated deliverance from slavery, for the purpose of serving as God's chosen priestly kingdom in the midst of the nations. The Exodus reveals for all of God's people, both then and now, what it means to be redeemed by God and what it means to worship and serve Him. So, as we have said in the past number of weeks, number one, the Exodus is our story. It is the history of God's people, and therefore, it is our history. And number two, the Exodus is for our instruction. The Bible invites us to apply the narrative of the Exodus directly to our 21st century Christian lives. Now, last week we applied the text to the sacrament of baptism. This week we're going to apply the narrative to the sacrament of communion, also known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. But before we get to the text in Exodus, I want to take us first to the gospel of John in the New Testament. In the sixth chapter there, we find Jesus feeding a group of 5,000 of His followers. Then, after a trip across the water with His disciples, He arrives on the other side of the sea, and He tells the people that the bread that He fed them with was actually pointing to something much greater. And the people say, we know. Our Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. They were given bread from heaven to eat. But Jesus tells them that it was actually Yahweh and not Moses who provided bread from heaven, and that the true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven to give life to the whole world. Now, in the next chapter, Jesus visits Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths, which commemorates Israel's journey in the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land of Canaan. During this feast, Israelites would engage in a water-pouring ceremony to remember when Yahweh gave them water in the desert. And on the last day of the feast, considered the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stands up in the midst of His people and says, "'If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me to drink.' Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus promises that those who are thirsty can come and drink of Him, from Him. And those who drink and therefore believe will not only have their thirst assuaged, but they themselves will become springs of living water. So today in Exodus 16 and 17, we're going to find out what Jesus was referencing. Before we begin reading, I want to draw your attention to the structure of the text. At the end of chapter 15 through the beginning of chapter 17, Israel's entrance into the wilderness begins with an oasis where they're given miracle water. Then in the wilderness, Yahweh feeds them with miracle bread, and then as they're moving through the wilderness, as we just read, He waters them with miracle water from a rock. And as it begins and ends with water, the structure is chiastic, which means that it's meant to draw our attention to the central part of this portion of text. And it's this, this is the central portion of the text, God feeds and sustains His people. Israel grumbles over their lack of food and water, and Yahweh graciously responds by giving them manna and water. I'm going to feed you, He says, and in feeding you, I will reveal My glory to you. Yahweh does this with the intention of producing thanksgiving in His people. So at this point, Israel has been delivered from Egypt through Passover. They've traveled through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea into a new land as a new humanity with a new king. Yahweh has proven himself to be merciful and powerful. He has loved Israel. He has dealt with their enemies, and they are finally experiencing true freedom under their new master. Now, the oasis that they came to at the very end of chapter 15 has 12 springs of water with 70 palm trees. I find this very interesting because these 12 springs represent the 12 tribes that Israel is going to grow up to be. And the 70 palm trees is a number in Scripture that is regularly representative of the nations. So it's as though... Israel, at the beginning of this journey, is being given a picture of who they are going to be in full maturity, springs of water that feed the nations. But at this point, Israel is very much just like a newborn baby. They're helpless in the wilderness. And so the question becomes, will the people trust Yahweh to sustain them and provide for them in the wilderness? We know that's the question that's being asked because the Sabbath here is one key theme sitting at the heart of the narrative, and the Sabbath is all about trusting Yahweh to sustain and provide. And as we're going to see, the Sabbath is also about thankfulness, and that's very important because just like an infant, grumbling comes very easily to Israel. Let's read. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The Israelites are most certainly institutionalized. Freed prisoners who have been liberated often long to return to what they know. And at the very least, Israel knew what to expect in their own subjugation in Egypt. Newly liberated, they're scared of what they won't have in the wilderness, and they're learning to trust Yahweh. But in such conditions, Pharaoh looks like a benevolent father who fed them daily, and Yahweh seems to be someone who withholds even the basic needs of food and water the murmuring though it's not isolated it's congregational grumbling now tongues have ignited fires grumbling spreads there's no challenge to its spreading but God has brought Israel out to teach them and swaddle them as new infants fresh from the womb he has grand plans to create a future for them and they are they're locked in the past And Moses tells them something astounding. He says this In your grumbling, your grumbling is not against us, it's against Yahweh. Israel's grumbling, our grumbling, as 21st century Christians, didn't and doesn't have just humans and circumstances as recipients. Scripture is teaching us something very important. Our grumbling is always to the Lord. It's always against the Lord. When we grumble, we're not just grumbling about our spouse or our kids or our salary or our family, the traffic, the weather, or the White House. Our grumbles are to the Lord. Now, Israel is no longer groaning In trust, as they did in their slavery, they're grumbling in distrust and resentment. In this moment, they've lost hope. They've forgotten God's historical promised faithfulness. But the antidote to grumbling is gratefulness and thanksgiving. And while God was giving Israel every opportunity to be grateful in light of his faithfulness, it's not uncommon that gratitude from infants does not come naturally. But Yahweh... Is a patient father. And in response to Israel's newborn grumbling, instead of fierce discipline, he promises to to sustain them with heavenly bread. Let's keep reading. Then Yahweh said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven, for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh, because He has heard your grumbling against Yahweh. Again, remember the imagery. God is turning the desert, as He promised in that beginning oasis, He's turning the desert into a well-watered and abundant garden. He is restoring the nation of Israel as a new Adam. God provides food directly for Israel, and this harkens back to Eden when God provided food for Adam and Eve without them having to work for it. The connection of these settings is important because in a garden, you cultivate the ground and you gather food as it comes. But in the desert wilderness, you would never expect to be able to plant and gather food. Through God's promise to provide food, He is in essence turning the wilderness into an oasis garden. He's transforming Israel's circumstances. God is going to give manna and water, elements that literally fall from the heavens to Israel so that they will know that it was Yahweh who delivered them from Egypt and so that they will see His glory. And just like Yahweh gave commands to Adam in the garden in relationship to food, he also gives Israel specific instructions when it comes to manna. Let's keep reading. It's the bread that Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered Some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. From the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the Tree of Life in Revelation, shared food is a sign of the covenant between God and His people. And I'd like to just draw our attention to just a few other examples of this in Scripture, In Genesis 14, Melchizedek shares bread and wine with Abram and blesses him. In Genesis 18, the Lord shares a meal with Abraham when he tells him about his promised son Isaac that's coming. In Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban make a covenant together and then they share a meal. The Passover, as we've seen, itself was a sign of God's covenant to Israel and Egypt. As we'll see in a number of weeks, at Sinai, God establishes covenant with Israel, with Moses and with the elders, and after he establishes that covenant, they eat. At the Feast of Tabernacles in Deuteronomy, people eat in the presence of God, and they rejoice with gratitude and thankfulness. Even the promised land that God has for Israel holds tokens of God's presence and blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. Yahweh brings sustenance to his people, and in doing so, it becomes a daily covenant renewal with them. Through manna every morning and quail every evening, Yahweh is saying to Israel, know that I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. See my glory revealed to you in this food. Yahweh sees to their daily need and daily bread, and he gives them food to build their trust. And while Yahweh instructs every household to only gather what's necessary for that day, the miracle is that those who gather as much as they can end up with the same amount as those who gather very little. Yahweh increases the portion for one group, he decreases the portion for another, but it results in no one lacking anything. Yahweh is not only desiring to make Israel into a people that trust him for daily food, but he's also Building a family that enjoys contentment in what they have, along with radical generosity. Can you even see the foreshadowed church in the book of Acts living in a way where they shared what they had and no one was in need? So Yahweh hears Israel's grumbling. He gives them miracle bread, He tells them to only gather what they need for the day, and He gives them another instruction. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you'll bake, boil what you'll boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside until the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you'll gather it. On the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be no more. I want us to remember again life in the garden for a moment. God created for six days, and he rested for one. The Sabbath was not established through the Ten Commandments and Mount Sinai. It was established during creation. So, this Sabbath command is grounded in the understanding that when Yahweh rested on the seventh day, it was a Sabbath rest that he was entering. And so, as Yahweh commands Israel to gather for six days and rest for one, he's extending the invitation for Sabbath rest to his children. Yahweh longs to sustain his people not only with manna, but with rest. The next 40 years are going to function as a teaching opportunity for Israel. They're going to learn to depend on Him for daily bread and no more because nothing is to be left over for the next day. It's in this rhythm of six day gathering and one day Sabbath resting that they learn to trust that Yahweh will provide food every day and extra on the sixth day. Ceasing from work of bread gathering on the Sabbath was teaching Israel that they had no ability to preserve themselves. It was a confession of faith in Yahweh's sustaining daily provision, but it was also an act of thanksgiving. Because even though manna will eventually come to an end when, when Israel enters the promised land… They continue to keep Sabbath because no matter what, Yahweh forever intends for Israel to be a grateful and trusting nation. In fact, we could say that Yahweh plans to take Israel from slavery to Sabbath. Like a good parent, he wants to mature them from childhood to adulthood. Let's keep reading in verse 32. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So manna and water were only intended to sustain Israel in their infancy in the wilderness with Yahweh. And when they enter the promised land, the manna stops. It's then that Israel will farm the land and food will come out of the ground again as a result of their work. But the lessons of the wilderness will stay with them. Even when they go into the land that Yahweh promised them, and it looks as though their work is what's actually producing the food, they will know that it is still God's provision that is sustaining them daily. The manna and Sabbath are part of Israel's glorification and maturation in order that they might grow up among the nations and bless them to be those 12 springs of water that feed the nations. Manna and water fall from the heavens. Bread and wine have to be cultivated in the ground. It wasn't possible to have bread and wine in the wilderness because you need land to grow grain and vineyards. So, manna and water symbolized a childlike sustenance following Israel's birth out of Egypt, and like a good father, Yahweh tries, tests, and teaches them in the wilderness. And once Israel matures into the land, they are able to cultivate for themselves while still remembering that God is their provider and sustainer. Now, while Israel needed direct provision in its infancy and helplessness in the wilderness, they're called to participate in their maturity when they secure the land that Yahweh promised them. And it's in this land that the infancy of manna and water will actually become glorified bread and wine that sustain them into adulthood and maturity. Though, as we see in chapter 17, even as Yahweh has continued to be faithful, Israel grumbles again. Let's read. But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Sounds familiar. So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh by saying, is Yahweh among us or not? God has intentionally brought them to this place. Just like we heard last week, he intentionally had them double back outside of the Red Sea. He's put them in this place as well. Massa and Meribah, which mean test and quarrel or contention. Yahweh tests Israel to see if they'll trust him, but finds them unfaithful and actually testing him instead. So in light of being worried and thirsty... Israel is ready to kill Moses with rocks, but instead, Yahweh gives them water and life from a rock. Yahweh descends upon the rock and commands Moses to strike it. I want you to picture this. He says, I will stand before you there on the rock. The pillar of cloud and fire settles on the rock. The glory cloud stands before Moses, and he swings the rod. This is the same rod that struck the Nile and turned it from water into blood. The rod passes through the cloud and strikes the rock, and it's Yahweh himself who's being struck. Yahweh submits to this rod of judgment, taking the punishment Israel deserved for their distrust. And out of his own vicarious suffering, he provides life-giving water to the people. It was through Yahweh's mercy that Egypt was stricken and Israel was spared. But here, Yahweh is stricken instead of Israel. Israel knew the staff for its power in unleashing destruction, but now they see it as an instrument of grace and sustenance. The Lord is faithful to provide food and water to his people. He is faithful to prove that he is truly among Israel. So in answer to their question, the answer is, absolutely, I'm among you. But what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians really helps us understand the greater picture of what's happening happening here. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. The Lord our rock God the Son, Jesus, was present when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness. He was the rock. The event recorded in Exodus 17 doesn't just point to Jesus. It is is him, the image of the glory of God and this rock of offense that was struck and from whom flows living water. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was proving himself to be the heavenly bread that comes down from heaven and brings life to the world. He is the one from whom we drink. The Nile was the river of life for Egypt, and when it was struck, blood flowed from it. When the Lord our rock was struck in the wilderness, water flowed from it. And when our Lord Jesus was struck on the cross, both water and blood flowed from him. Jesus was the one who ultimately was stricken for our distrust and our grumbling. Jesus thirsted on the cross that we might have his water, which flowed with blood from his open side. Jesus is the bread that comes from heaven, the stricken rock of God, the river of that flows from under the threshold of the temple. Jesus was stricken for our sin, but he was also stricken to feed us a meal of thankfulness. Eucharist means thanksgiving. The bread is his body, the wine is his blood. And this means that every Sunday, Jesus is our nourishment at this table. God is still continuing to feed us and sustain us as his church with this meal of thanksgiving. When we leave our houses on a Sunday morning and we come into this place, we are gathering as the church. We are simultaneously constituting the church and being transformed more into the church. We are coming with different lives, different backgrounds, different races, different jobs, some with much, some with little, some old, some young. But as we gather together, we are becoming something more than we were on our own. We're actually greater because of the sum of our parts. We are a new humanity with a new life. We've passed through the waters of death into a new creation, and now we are being fed by Yahweh. We gather to share a meal with the one in whom all things find their beginning and end. And what matters most is the presence of Christ, our rock, and fellowship with Him, but He has ordained that that fellowship would take place at a meal. The emphasis in Scripture is equally on the active presence of Christ at this supper and on the supper's prophecy that Christ will return. So the Eucharist is not a mournful memorial. It's a feast. It's a festival. And we should celebrate it as a feast before the eyes of the world so that those who have yet to trust Christ will realize the full extent of what they're being invited to partake of. Communion is given as a providential antidote to grumbling. Because it itself is a meal of gratitude with the one who has become our Eucharist. It is he who offers, and it is he who is offered. It is he who feeds us, and it is he who is our food. When we stand before the throne of God as forgiven sons and daughters in union with Christ, sharing in all that he fulfilled, with all joy restored as we are right now, there is nothing left for us to do but to give thanks. The Eucharist is the state of perfect man before the Lord in Christ. And just like the Israelites, we can look at this communion meal and know that it is God who has rescued us and this is God who is revealing His glory to us. And again, Manna and water are elements that fall from the sky for a people in their infancy. Bread and wine of communion are cultivated from the earth by a people in their maturity. Through our work to cultivate grain and grapes into bread and wine, we glorify the raw materials given to us by God. And this has much to say about how we should view our work, our daily work. Though we now get bread and wine from a store, We are still working and cultivating in the world, producing a harvest to offer to to the Lord, to offer to God. And every Sunday, we bring the work of our hands into this sanctuary, into this temple, and God is glorified in the work of our hands. So whether you're an engineer, a nurse, a mom, an attorney, a school teacher, an empty nester, an artist... All of our work, all of your work, that, all the work that you've done this week is a sowing and reaping, a reaping and offering to God as if it were planted grain. It means that all of your work on spreadsheets and diapers and lesson plans and brown bag lunches and meals cooked for friends and meals cooked with and for neighbors or taking someone's blood pressure It's an offering of worship to God, and the work that you have brought applies to the other six days of the week as well. This morning, I brought this sermon. Behind these walls, there are Sojourn Kid volunteers that are bringing the work of their hands as they care for our children. You all have brought something as well, the work of your hands. We should not miss what these elements teach us about our work and God's provision. He is sustaining us daily by our work and everything in that way can be a communion with Him. And by God's grace and plan, we will be those springs of water to the nations, inviting everyone and anyone to drink from the rock that is Christ. Let us pray.